who was in training in opera at Indiana University, who had an effervescent witness to Jesus Christ. And effervescent and blonde often go together. And this woman is a blonde. Her name's Dawn Spady now. At the time, she was Dawn Wagner. And Dawn was a beautiful witness to Jesus Christ in the music school, in the, in the world of opera, which is not exactly a hotbed of godliness. And uh, one day, I remember Dawn telling me about a uh, handsome young man who uh, was sort of a, a Don Juan, uh, and how she had pushed him to stop what he was doing in his life and to think of Jesus Christ. It's time for you to get serious with Jesus Christ were her exact words that I remember her saying to me. Well, I didn't know the man, but then I got to know him. And uh, it is Dan. And uh, Dan is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, but he's also the fruit of one of our congregation witnessing to Jesus Christ. So don't get jaded. When you see somebody that's more successful than you ever were in dating women, and you think, well... He doesn't need Jesus. Forget it. He does need Jesus. Um, Don't think that uh, it would somehow be more difficult for God to bring somebody to Jesus Christ than it was for him to bring you. And uh, so anyhow, Dan, we, we love you. We love your wife. It's been a great privilege to know you. And uh, we trust that God will protect you in the same industry that you're now in, the music business, and that he will make you a faithful witness, unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, it's very interesting that this morning we're going to be looking at something in Scripture that really has a lot to do with both Dan and Holly and also with Don and with all of you who are musicians, but especially opera people. We're going to look at the issue of the Lord's Day. Uh, probably the, the issue that more than any other issue caused Don to uh, no longer get gigs uh, singing in operas. And so let's turn in our Bible to the book of Galatians, the fourth chapter. I'm going to read verses 8 to 20. Um, we're going to focus on the first couple of verses this week. Then next week, I want us to look at uh, not the issue of uh, special days and uh, months and seasons and years, but to go on and look at how the Apostle Paul deals with this flock. In other words, I want next week to look at his relationship with his congregation. Let's read then Galatians chapter 4, beginning with verse 8. However, at that time, when you did not know God... You were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. 
And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I here bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? By the way, if I were to take one sentence out of Scripture, out of all of Scripture, and say, what sentence is the most typical sort of mournful plaintive cry of elders in elders' meetings when they're dealing with someone that's fallen into sin? I would single out that one verse. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? If you're ever in sin and the elders of a church discipline you, remember that by telling you the truth, they have not become your enemies. They've actually proven their love to you. Now, that's just something that you get for free this morning. You don't have to pay for that one. They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them, speaking of the false shepherds. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you. My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, but I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Father, as we read your word, we thank you that you have left us ignorant. You have not left us to the designs of the people that produce our talk shows like uh, Dr. Phil and Oprah. You have not left us uh, to be misled by our newspapers and magazines. and You have not left us simply to gaze into nature. But you have given us the book of God. And that we thank you that in this book are your very words, each one chosen by you, not one of them simply the result of the will of a man. And we thank you for the promise that this word contains, that when the Bible was preached and read and taught, that it will never go out without accomplishing the purposes for which you send it. And so now we wait with faith, believing that in this place at this time, you will be pleased to use a sinful man and by him to feed all of our hearts so that we may be made wise unto salvation. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of every heart here be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Beginning with verse 8, we're moving out of the theological section in which the Apostle Paul argues mostly over doctrine and into a transition section in which Paul makes a very personal appeal. And then we move into the concluding section of Galatians in which he commands the Galatians to live in a way that honors God. What in commentaries they call the ethical section. You know, you have uh, in most hospitals now you have an ethics committee. It's a committee that studies and decides what should be done. And all the letters of the New Testament uh, move from doctrine into ethics. So the doctrine doesn't exist by itself, but it leads into what we should do. What is obedience based on the doctrine? Well, this is the transition section. 
But this is a very, very personal section. There are still some doctrinal points that will be made. We'll move into the section on Hagar and Sarah that Paul uses as an analogy later in chapter 4. And that's doctrinal. It's an argument based upon logical proofs drawn from Scripture, much like the rest of the first three chapters of Galatians. But the section we just read this morning isn't primarily theological. It isn't composed of true statements based upon parts of God's revelation in the words of Scripture. But instead, it is a deeply and a painfully personal section. Uh, It's an emotional cry of grief and anguish by a father, by a mother in the faith over the pain that he is experiencing because of the rebellion and the self-destruction of his children. Now, why is Paul so emotional? What is at stake? Well, look at verses 8 to 10 and you see the reason. He says, however, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? And so here they were, Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles in this church. Both of them he characterizes as having been enslaved. Slaves to those which by nature are no gods. And then he describes how God in his mercy reached down and picked them up and lifted them out of the hole and set them on a high rock. And that high rock is freedom in Christ. All right? You think, for instance, in Corinthians, how it goes through a list and it says um, that of such were some of you. It's listed murderers and people involved in homosexuality and all these other sins. And it says of such were some of you. And so there in Corinthians, here in Galatians, we're dealing with people who have been in bondage to sin, have been in bondage to sexual sin, to sins of violence, to sins of all different kinds, theft, embezzlement, whatever it was. And those sins have also been uh, examples of the fact that they have in their hearts clung to their own righteousness and to their own standards and to their own sense of what would make them acceptable to God. Uh, Both Jews and Gentiles in bondage. And he says, but now that you have come to know God, and then he has a parenthetical statement, or rather to be known by God, and this is always important for us to remember, that the way we look at it, we would say to come to know God. I remember a number of years ago, Campus Crusade had a national campaign, and there were bumper stickers on all the cars, and the campaign was, uh, the, 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 the question on the bumper sticker or the statement on the bumper sticker was, I found it. All right? And, the, and you were supposed to ask, what did you find? This was the, the national evangelistic uh, uh, campaign of Campus Crusade. Some of you remember this? Help me, you know? I'm not that old, right? Okay. All right, so I found it. You're supposed to say, well, what did you find? It was funny because a lot of people would, would, would make up other bumper stickers. Do you remember what the other ones they made up were? Like, uh, you know, I never lost it or something like that, you know? It was really quite funny. Well, if you think of what that bumper sticker says, what is it saying? It's saying, I found God. Well, that's the way Paul's writing. 
He says, now that you have come to find God, now that you have come to... And then he stops and he says, no, no, no. Rather to be found by God. All right? And those of you that don't like the doctrine of God's sovereignty and predestination, bam! You know, this little parenthetical aside, you've got to hit your head against and see that God is pleased to find us. Even though as we see it, we found him. All right. Always guard your language and make sure it's biblical. When you or a friend or your child begins to think that they reached out and grabbed a hold of God, remember that before they reached out and grabbed a hold of God, God reached out and grabbed a hold of them. It was their response. That's the reason, I believe, that the Michelangelo, uh, the Sistine Chapel little picture is so popular. It's used in all kinds of advertising around the world. I saw it in London. I think I saw it in Africa. What is it? It's the hand of God reaching out to man. Powerful. It's, and this is the nature of the Christian faith that's different than any other religion in the world. That every other religion has man reaching to God. But there's only one religion that has God reaching to man. And that is the Christian faith. And that's the significance of this picture in the Sistine Chapel of the hand of God reaching down. And so you have this parenthetical aside, now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. All right. How is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things? The Apostle Paul is beside himself with pain and anger because the Galatians have been known by God, have come to know God, but now are turning their backs on God and returning to the idolatry and to the bondage and to the slavery that God rescued them from. They had been slaves to idols, really to demons, when God poured out his love on them in Jesus Christ, rescuing them from sin and from death and from hell releasing them from their bondage and making them free. And how did they respond to this? Well, they're exchanging their royal privileges of being adopted sons of God in possession of the perfect freedom Jesus Christ gave them. They're exchanging this for slavery to the law. And through this slavery to the law, slavery to the elemental principles behind that law, the principalities and powers of darkness, that are behind every religious scheme that is not simple gospel of salvation by faith in God's own Son, Jesus Christ. They are now exchanging truth for error. They're exchanging grace for the law, freedom for slavery, and the fatherhood of God for the fatherhood of the devil. No wonder the Apostle Paul is beside himself with grief and anger. His sons and daughters in the faith are turning their backs on him now, you might think, well, that's strange to say that. Why would you say on him? Well, it's weird, but we'll get into this this next week. Um, but it's a very personal issue. And it's, you know, you would think, well, talk about God. Don't talk about Paul. But Paul does talk about himself. And it's very clear that Paul is so identified with Jesus Christ in the life of his congregation that the rejection of Christ begins with the rejection of Paul. Isn't that interesting? And God is pleased to use sinful men in our lives in this way that, that as those men stand, we are given strength to stand. As those men fall, we are caused grief. We are led into sin. Shepherds are not small things. And so I do say that as they reject him, 
They reject the truth. They reject Jesus Christ. They reject the the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. They're led back into the law, into slavery. They're led back into demons, back to hell. Note the diagnosis Paul makes. Formerly, they did not know God and were slaves to those who are not God's. But now, knowing God, although they've been freed, although they're adopted sons of God, they are going back into their bondage to the devil himself. Now, what is it that proves the accuracy of Paul's diagnosis of them? If you think of a pastor engaging in the same basic behavior that a physician does, you go in, he looks at you, he examines you, and then he makes a diagnosis. This is what the Apostle Paul is doing to this whole church. He's examining the church and he's found them wanting. And he's diagnosing that they have a terminal illness. All right? And he's fighting with everything he has to end that terminal illness. Now, what is the proof that they have their terminal illness? It is their intention to add what? First, circumcision to the blood of Christ as they stand before the holy God to give an account of their lives. And this has been spoken of endlessly in the previous chapters of Galatians that we've studied. And then, here in verse 10, we see that the error hasn't been limited simply to circumcision, but it's also now involved following a religious or a liturgical calendar that with circumcision is also supposed to impress God and to lead to their being in good standing with him both today and on the final day of judgment. The Galatians were not content to cling only to Jesus. They wanted something more, something they themselves could produce and control that would give them security and hope outside of the completed cross of Christ. And so they turned back from grace to works, and specifically the works of the Jewish ceremonial law, including, now we learn, the laws of the religious observation of days and months and seasons and years. Now, there's a little debate today over the meaning of the book of Galatians and how it applies to the circumcision of the children of Christians. If I were to tell you that there's a church in the United States today that calls itself the first Judaizing church. And that the principal act of that church is that when male children are born to the parents of that church, the male child is brought to a religious ceremony where it is circumcised. You'd laugh. You'd say, oh, surely not. And I'd say, well, why are you laughing? And you'd say, well, have they never read the book of Galatians? All right? Doesn't Galatians teach us that circumcision can no longer be a religious act, that circumcision is wrong for Christians. And then I would say to you, well, have you had your children circumcised? And you look at me and you say, well, what does that have to do with anything? And I'd say, well, just answer the question. And you say, well, yeah, but what does that have to do with anything? I say, but I thought the Apostle Paul was fighting so that you wouldn't have to circumcise your children. Well, he was. Well, how come you circumcised them then? Well, I don't know. I've never thought about that. Now, now, where am I headed? Well, some of you know immediately. <laughs> Here's where I'm headed. It's the, it's the habit of us as Christians not to want to think about Scripture. I always fantasize around April 15th about how 
in great intensity, Christian, usually men, put into the IRS tax codes. I mean, they know every single detail, every permutation, every nuance, every possible loophole. But when it comes to Scripture, we come to Scripture like idiots. You know, we go, you know, we're like the Borg. You know, here I come to Scripture. It says that, you know, and we expect Scripture's going to be fed to us without any effort on our part to understand it. We're supposed to take the first reading that, 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 that occurs to us, and since it's a holy book, it shouldn't be hard. Now, it is true that you don't need a doctorate or even a master's or even a bachelor's or even a high school education to understand what you need to know of Scripture. Scripture is written for simple people, all right? But that doesn't mean that simple people reading it at first blush, the first thing that occurs to them will always be right. And this is one of those texts. I can show you from the book of Galatians that Paul absolutely condemns the practice of circumcision that's taking over the Galatian church. There's no question about this. And then I turn to you and say, then why have you circumcised your children? And you say, well, for health reasons. And I say, I'll bet a lot of you haven't just circumcised them for health reasons. I'll bet a lot of you have also circumcised them for social reasons. You don't want your child to be different. All right? So are you disobeying Scripture? The Bible says that it's the Judaizers that are pushing circumcision. You say, yeah, but my motivation isn't to improve their standing before God. My motivation is not thinking that that circumcision somehow makes them able to stand on the judgment day and to give an account to God that will improve their hope. Namely, I'm circumcised God. All right, I'll grant you that. Now, let's move on to the day of, to, to the issue of observing certain days and seasons and years. Again, the Apostle Paul equates this with returning to the slavery to demons. It's very clear. Just like circumcision, so the observance of certain days is a return to bondage to Satan. Now, do you observe certain days of the year? Seasons. If you're a farmer, you know, do you plant in the spring? I'd say that is to observe a season. Okay, do you harvest in the fall? All right, how about Christmas? Do you celebrate Christmas? How about Easter? Do you celebrate Easter? How about birthdays? Do you celebrate birthdays? How about Sunday? Do you worship on Sunday? So what's with it? Again, Scripture is clear in Galatians that we are not supposed to return to bondage to Satan by observing certain days, months, seasons, and years. What about years? You know, do you observe anniversaries? Do you have like a 50th anniversary party? So why are you disobeying God? Now, again, you feel like I'm not quite being fair, right? All right, okay, I'm not being fair. So what's the solution? Well, the solution is not for us to take either the prohibition of circumcision or the prohibition of observing certain days and months and seasons and years and absolutize it and say, 
it is of the essence of Christianity that we will not allow our sons to be circumcised and that we will not celebrate the Sabbath. Oh, now he's getting unfair. He's choosing one of those times, singling it out. And really, you shouldn't observe the Sabbath. Oh, why? Don't you see all these things are put in parallel construction? The days, the months, the seasons, and the years. It doesn't just say don't observe Sabbaths, does it? And if you go to the other texts in the New Testament where it deals with this issue, in Romans, it again doesn't just single out Sabbaths, does it? And yet it's very interesting that evangelical Christians today are very intense in saying no Sunday observance, no Sabbath observance, and then they go out and have a birthday party. And they have Christmas. And they have Good Friday, and they have Easter, they have Pentecost. Now, here's an interesting thing. Did you know that the Apostle Paul, after fighting against circumcision, had Timothy, his protege, circumcised? What's that about? Listen, in Acts chapter 16, right after the Council of Jerusalem that deals with the issue of circumcision in Antioch, we read, Paul wanted Timothy to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So this same Paul, who's whooped up on circumcision, then takes his protege and circumcises him. Why? What's the difference? Isn't Paul simply giving in to the legalism? Isn't Paul trying to improve Timothy's and his standing before God? No. The difference is this can be characterized as discretion being the better part of valor. This is an act of tact and diplomacy. Now you say, how do you know that? I say, well, what do you think? Do you think the Apostle Paul, you know, in Acts 16, right after Acts 15, do you think the Apostle Paul is circumcising Timothy because he's gotten confused? The one thing you can never accuse Paul of being is confused. Paul always seems to know where he's headed, and he always seems to nail it down with lots of nails. All right? And so I don't think Paul's confused. All right? So Paul, having argued against circumcision, has Timothy circumcised. Plain facts, plain truth, you've got to deal with it. Now, let's go on to the seasons, the days, the months, the seasons, and the years. Did you realize in the area of special days, times, and seasons of the year that the Apostle Paul here condemns it and refers to it as, as slavery to Satan, but in Romans 14, beginning with verse 5, he says this, he says, one person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not for the Lord does not eat and give thanks to God. Now, what's my point? Well, my point is that in Galatians, it's referred to as slavery to the evil spirits, whereas here it's referred to as something that's a matter of individual judgment and conscience. Do you understand that? Do you understand what I'm saying? So there's a very different intensity in Galatians than there is here in Romans. Here it's left to the individual conscience. Indeed, we see the Apostle Paul not only leaving this matter to the individual conscience of Christians, but we see Paul, now you're going to be able to 
to predict what I'm going to say, but we see Paul himself observing special days and months and seasons and years in Scripture. All right? In 1 Corinthians 6, he writes, For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. All right? And if you go down to Acts chapter 20, you see that he's hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Indeed, beyond the Apostle Paul leaving days beyond the Apostle Paul leaving days and months and seasons and years, matters of individual conscience, beyond his own habits of observing special days himself, days that were religious in nature, we see that under the Holy Spirit the Apostle Paul called the church herself to observe a special day each week. And what day was it? It was the first day of the week. In fact, listen to this. 1 Corinthians 16, concerning the collection for the saints, as I've given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. And if you go back in church history, what you find is that from the very first moments of the church, Christians have set aside Sunday, the first day of the week, to commemorate the resurrection of Jesus Christ and to gather for worship. This has always been the habit of the church, and we're reproducing it today. Now, is this a violation of the command of Galatians? Is it a violation? I don't have time to go on much longer, but I want to read to you two things that are on opposite sides of this issue. Okay? First of all, I want to read from the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is what it says, and this is our theological constitution as a church. As it is the law of nature, this is chapter 21, that in general, a due proportion of time be set apart for the worship of God. So in his word, by a positive moral and perpetual commandment, binding all men in all ages, he has particularly appointed one day and seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which in Scripture is called the Lord's Day and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. This Sabbath is to be kept holy unto the Lord when men, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering of their common affairs beforehand, do not only observe a holy rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employments and recreations, but also are taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. Now, Calvin, on the other hand, believed that the Sabbath observance was part of the ceremonial law, that it pointed forward to Christ and the Sabbath that Christ would bring in, and that therefore it's done away with. And John Calvin says this, He says, under the repose of the seventh day, the heavenly lawgiver meant to represent to the people of Israel spiritual rest in which believers ought to lay aside their own works to allow God to work in them. 
Secondly, he meant that there was to be a stated day for them to assemble to hear the law and perform the rites, or at least to devote it particularly to meditation upon his works, and thus through this remembrance to be trained in piety. Thirdly, he resolved to give a day of rest to servants and those who were under authority of others in order that they should have some respite for toil. Now, that's him describing the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, prior to Christ. Then Calvin says this, But there is no doubt that by the Lord Christ's coming, the ceremonial part of this commandment was abolished. Although the Sabbath has been done away with, abrogated, there is still occasion for us, one, to assemble on stated days for the hearing of the word, the breaking of the mystical bread, and for public prayers, and two, to give surcease from labor to servants and workmen. Now, what I have intended to do this morning is I've intended to, to, to make you confused and to make you doubt yourself. Okay? That's, that's my only intention. And why? Well, because this is a matter of individual conscience. Okay? I am not opposed to any of you circumcising your children. That's fine. When my brother was born, he was a hemophiliac, and he almost died because of it. I don't think that that was because my parents were sinning. I just think it's a function of how the body works. All right? In the same way, the observation of the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, is a matter of individual Christian conscience. And the Apostle Paul, both on circumcision and on the observation of certain days, was adamantly opposed to anybody thinking that their acts would produce a right standing before God. None of us ought to think that Jesus is not sufficient, that his blood isn't enough, and that we need to add to it our own works of righteousness. That's the relentless theme of the book of Galatians. On the other hand, it did not stop Paul from having Timothy circumcised, and it didn't stop him from exhorting the church to gather on the first day to set aside their offerings and to take them, and it didn't keep him from observing Pentecost and I'm sure any number of other special religious days. And I could go on about that, talking about his vows that he took when he went back to Jerusalem. So what does that leave us in? Well, that leaves me in exhorting you, number one, to realize that you are not in sin by gathering on Sunday here in worship right now. This is not a violation of the command. But number two, I want to ask you, if the church in America today is inclined to make an error in one and two directions, either to look at their Sabbath observance as giving them right standing before God, or to turn their back entirely on the seasons and times that God has ordained, to think nothing of requiring people to work for them, and therefore to miss worship on the first day of the week, I think probably everybody would agree that our error is more in this direction than this direction. Do you understand? And when I became a pastor, I had a young man who was working in a fast food joint. And I had not really thought through this issue of how we, how we treat Sunday. And then I found out that he and other people in our church were not able to come to church because they had to be working in fast food joints. And then I realized that if I loved the people in my church... I was not going to go out to those restaurants which required them to work. Do you understand that? That was not me being a Sabbatarian. It was simply me loving 
the poor people that have to work on Sunday to provide us meals, to be our busboys and our waiters. And so I have two exhortations for you. Number one, don't be smug in whatever your position is on this. It's a complicated issue. Don't think that it's a simple, you don't observe the Sabbath. You are here, it is the Lord's Day, and this has been the church's habit for 2,000 years. Okay? And so you're participating in it right now. But on the other hand, think of charity. Think of those people that do work on, on, on Sunday and therefore are not able to go to church. And how would love for them cause you to think through your observance of Sunday? It may not be a law, but it might be charity. And isn't that really what the New Testament is about loving people and having that love be what leads us to take certain actions. Now, I'm happy to talk to you more about it afterwards. I hope I do have you all riled up, and I hope there are arguments in the car on the way home, good arguments. I hope you do go back to Scripture on this, but we're out of time. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we.